and we will get moving. Just going to invite Matt to yep. come up and open scripture for us. Check pages are in order. Okay, this morning's Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter two. Uh, if you were here last week, you'd have seen, uh, we'd have heard from Hebrews chapter one, where we were told that Jesus is superior to the angels, and chapter two carries on from there. If you picked up a Bible as you came in, we're on page 1861. That's probably only relevant to a few of you. So Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a, there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Matt, and can I add my welcome to that? of Moz and Michael. My name's Chris. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here. And if you've got your leaflet, you'll see uh, the passage printed there and an outline of where we're going. Uh, it's great being part of a church, right? It's great being part of a church. Um, you may have picked up in that reading, we are described as family. We are described as brothers and sisters. I don't know what everyone else is doing on Sunday, but they're not having the same experience as us. Sometimes we can think, Oh, I'd rather be having that experience, but just think for a moment, what, what are other people doing? You know, they might be warm in bed, but you know, 
that's them, they're alone, you know, it's just with, or with the normal people in their household. Um, other people may be shopping, big whoop. Other people may be joining in a club, a car club, but that's a fairly limited society. You've got to have fairly substantial capital and then you just talk about cars. <laughs> All right, and you know, like what, what are other people doing, you know? And we get to, people greet you warmly at church. They are genuinely glad to see you. Brothers and sisters, you are connected. Um, you listen to, you know, hopefully a helpful passage. You sing together. When else does that happen? You bring your needs to a God who cares for you in prayer. You do this individually. You do this collectively. You can deal with your issues that you've had through the week. You can deal with your faults and failings through the week. You can bring them to God through Jesus. Who else has anything like this? A group of people brought together by God as family, joined together by his love and sacrifice, united in fellowship through his spirit, motivated by a common mission to bring others in and therefore use their collective talents, opportunities, resources to serve one another to that ends. And we follow someone we worship who models selfless love and compassion. It is a wonderful thing to be part of God's people. Right? Right. Now, that very love and concern that we can have for one another can sometimes make us feel out of our depth when we see people go through pastoral situations. My mic on? Yep. Yep. Pastoral situations. Um, where people are struggling and we don't know. Maybe like me, you've sometimes felt at a loss to know the right words to say. What do you say when someone at church or a fellow believer, their life has fallen apart, they've stopped coming to church anymore because they don't feel worthy enough to come? All right, now I don't know if you know this, but our suburbs are full of people like this. They just don't feel good enough to come. Now, saying, don't worry, we're all sinners, that actually doesn't take away their sense of shame. What do you say? What's the pastorally wise thing to say? What do you say when you can see someone standing at kind of this moral crossroads in their life and you know they're about to walk down a wrong path or a hazardous path, but you don't want to push them away from you by coming on and warning them too strongly? What do you say? What do you say when, you know, as happens, God can sometimes seem a zillion miles away, someone's in a spiritually barren place, and to them, Jesus just seems too great, too mighty, too Hebrews 1, you know, God, supreme over creation, <laughs> the exact representation of God's being, you know, his glory. What do you say when Jesus seems too far above them to be helpful? What do you say to parents when they're worried about the pressure and temptations that their kids are facing? What do you say to kids when they're worried about the pressure and temptation that their parents are facing? What do you say to yourself when you're in that situation, when you find sticking with Jesus hard? or when your love for Jesus is simply just over time steadily growing cold, and we're the ones, frankly, who are drifting 
away from our first love. You want to say something, but quoting a Bible verse doesn't always hit the mark, you've worked that out, and can come across as judgmental or unfeeling, even if motivated in the right way. How do we grow in pastoral insight and have the right words to say? Well, that is why this letter of Hebrews was written, so that we would know what to say. This chapter, Hebrews chapter two, was written precisely to people under pressure, who've begun as Christians but are seriously challenged and thinking about giving up and not sticking with Jesus anymore. And it's also written to believers who are persevering but need a crash course, frankly, in pastoring 101. <laughs> okay. What we started hearing last week was a consistent kind of riff through the song of Hebrews, which we'll keep playing throughout this letter, that Jesus is better. That's the riff that goes right through the letter. Don't give up Jesus, don't throw in your faith, keep persevering because whatever you're hoping to gain by throwing in the towel, don't. Jesus is better. You won't come out a winner by giving up on Jesus, you'll come out a loser. He is better in who he is. He is better in what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us because he's still alive and he's still got a ministry towards us. It begins, and it began last week, with who Jesus is, that Jesus Christ is God's majestic son. Last week, we've heard he, he, he's fully God, meaning that he's a better revelation. He reveals God to us more clearly than any other revelation before or since. And from today, chapter two, we're reminded that the one in chapter one who is fully God, at the same time as that being true, he is also fully human. He is 100% human. He is one of us. Last week, we thought on the pastoral significance for us of Jesus' divinity. This week, we're thinking of the pastoral significance of his humanity towards us. So let me just open it up for you for a moment. Um, what does it mean, pastorally, that Jesus is a human? What does it mean that Jesus shared in our humanity? I'm gonna come down here and just sort of walk and try and find out ideas, because you probably have ideas, but it'd be helpful if you say them to me and I'll just repeat them. What does it mean that Jesus is a human, that he shared in our humanity? Any thoughts, any thoughts at all? I'm coming near you, so it won't be too embarrassing to come and say. What does it mean that, Je yes? He felt hunger and pain just like us, thank you. He understands how we feel, yet, um, yes, and I could add, God understands how we feel because he's God, right, <laughs> as well as being human. What else, what does it mean that Jesus is human? He was tempted and he got tired, yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yep. He cried, didn't he? He wept of a friend who tired, felt re real grief, it wasn't pretend. Any other thoughts? He related to other people. Yeah. Thank you. He can represent us because he's a human. Yes, you've thought of kids talk, right? <laughs> this was helpful for you. Okay. All right. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things, isn't there? Um, 
what would we lose if he wasn't fully human? What would we lose in approaching God? What would we lose in having God's anger turned away? What would we lose in him understanding the human condition and sympathizing with us or helping us in our time of trial if he were not fully human? Jesus, uh, Hebrews chapter two tells us that because God's majestic son is human, drum roll please, he is our mediator. That's who he is. He is our mediator. He enables us to come to God the Father. When we come to God, we don't stop at Jesus. We come to the Father through him. He mediates. He's the bridge in the gap between us and the Father. Now, this point is made in three steps which build on each other. Each step is good news. Each step is a reason to never give up on Jesus. The first step, <laughs> I've just said, he is the man. He is the man. I've always wanted to do that. Now, normally we would say that of someone who saves a situation, who succeeds where everyone else has failed. The player who comes through at the last moment to kick the winning goal. He is the man. You know, the soldier who storms the enemy line and enables the battle to be won. This week I was reminded, a true story, of a mid-air collision that occurred between two light planes at Bankstown Airport in 2009. The planes hit each other. One of them tragically, uh, you know, uh, fell to the ground and two, the two people in it tragically died. The plane that was hit was uh, piloted by an inexperienced 25-year-old pilot who freaked out when his plane got hit, fair enough. But he was saved by his passenger, 89 years old, who didn't freak out. He kept his cool, he calmly took over, and he landed the plane himself. He is the man, right? He's the guy you want in your plane when you get hit by another plane. Um, this passenger, Ken Andrews, had in fact been a Spitfire flying ace in World War II. He was experienced in handling pressure. He had been shot down over New Guinea. He had escaped detention from the Japanese by floating downstream under a log, hoping that the crocs didn't get him before the Japanese did, and he got out. When he's in a hopeless situation in a plane, he's, you know, and he's just been hit, he's about to crash. He's the guy you want to be in your plane. He's the one to pin your hopes on. Hebrews chapter two begins by saying this for us. Jesus, he is the man. Paraphrasing verses five to nine, the argument goes something like this. There is a world to come. The present world is not the world that God has in store for his people. God has something better in store for us, the world to come. And in the world to come, God's original plan will be realized that the world will be ruled not by angels, but by people. Men and women who are, who are living their lives under God. This was God's plan in Eden before everything got overturned, but it still remains God's plan and it's moving towards it and it will happen. It comes out in Psalm 8, which the writer quotes here, when he asks, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. We know this sentiment, don't we? You know, you look up in the night sky, uh, the vastness of the universe we seem so insignificant, so small, and yet God has huge plans for us. This is awesome and humbling. 
you made mankind a little lower than the angels. Imagine that. And you've crowned them with glory and honor to put everything under their feet. This is a picture of people ruling the world as God intended. Except verse 9, at present, this isn't what we see. We don't see people ruling the world as God intended. We, we make a mess of things, and also creation makes a mess of us. Just this week, earthquakes in Afghanistan, terrible. Floods in China, horrendous. People aren't ruling the creation as God intended. And then the writer says, but, but here's the thing. We do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, he became human, but now he is crowned with glory and honour. On earth, as Jesus as a human, he ruled the world as we were created to, but we don't. Remember Jesus telling the wind and the waves, be quiet, be still, you're threatening us. And they were. <laughs> and having now risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, he, he is still human. He hasn't turned into an angel, he is still a human being. He rose with a human body. He's divine as well, but he's human. He is now human in heaven. And he is seated on the throne and he is ruling the world. We may not rule the world as human beings as God intended, but Jesus presently does. As a human being, he has fulfilled what God intends all of us one day to share with him in. He is a man now crowned with glory and honor. In Jesus, we have a picture of what one day we will share in. We will rule the new creation alongside of him under God. So this is the first implication of the majestic son of God becoming human. In terms of the world to come, he is our hope. He's the first of us to be doing what we were made to be. Now, that's the first step. Let's build on it. Jesus might be the man ruling in heaven, but what confidence does that give us that we'll also share with him in this? The answer is that Jesus is our trailblazing hero who's gone ahead of us, who secured our place with him and opened the way up for us to follow. Now, you'll be excused if you haven't read the word trailblazing hero in your Bible, right? It's there, and I want to explain it. Verse 10 spells out God's plan. God's plan is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It's not just that Jesus will be there. That's not just God's plan. His plan is that many sons and daughters will be brought to glory alongside Jesus. Now, how does that happen? Verse 9 says, he tasted death for everyone. We think, how? How could he taste death for everyone? by sharing in our humanity and suffering because of it. Have a listen to verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Hashtag that phrase, pioneer of their salvation. We'll come back to it. Both the one, verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, or call us, brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the, in the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Let's think about this. Verse 10 describes Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. Now, let's take them in turn. That word pioneer is extremely rare. It only occurs three times in the Bible, twice in Hebrews. There is no one English word which can easily translate it. Uh, we just don't have the word. The Greek word is archeogos. Outside the Bible, on the one hand, it meant the founding, founder or hero of a city. And here it has that sense, the, the, the trailblazer who enables others to follow, that soldier who single-handedly fights his way to the stronghold, opening up the way for others to follow, the hero explorer who alone slashes through this impenetrable jungle, opening up a path for others to follow, the pioneering trailblazer, all right? But the word also has another sense, um, and it has to do with, he goes first, but he He's, he achieves a salvation for his people. Like the platoon commander who charges the enemy and wins the battle and in doing so opens up the way for his troops to follow. He wins for them but opens up the way. Used of Jesus, this word means that he not only opens up the way, he's a trailblazer. He's the first human who's got there. We, we will follow. But at the same time, he also saves us as he does it. He's our hero, he's our saviour. He's our trailblazing hero, you see. He tastes death for us. He brings many sons and daughters to glory. He doesn't just open up the path for us to achieve our own salvation or something. He secures glory for us. He doesn't just open up the way for salvation for us to follow him, he achieves it. For us. We follow him because he's opened up the way and has saved us already. That's the sense of this word. Now how? Verse 10 tells us that the way this happened was through God making Jesus perfect through suffering. God made Jesus perfect through suffering. Does that mean that there was a time when he wasn't perfect. If God made Jesus perfect through suffering, does that mean that he was sinful and then he became sinless because of his suffering? No, can't mean that. Jesus didn't ever sin. If he did, when he went to the cross, he'd be paying for his own sins, not anyone else's. Our salvation's shot. So get rid of that idea that being made perfect means being made morally perfect. That's not what it's saying. What's it mean? The, the word perfect is the Greek word telos. It means complete um, or uh, becomes the final goal, what, what it was finally meant to be. What, he, he, he's complete. Um, in saying Jesus became our perfect, complete saviour, through what he suffered. It's, it, it's saying that suffering was part and parcel of him becoming the saviour that we needed. So every time that he was tempted and he held out against sinning, Jesus in his life suffered. 
Um, you and I don't suffer like this. We suffer when we're tempted and we hold out, yeah, but when we give in, we just give in and the suffering or the, you know, the pain of holding out ends. Jesus never gave in. He went beyond the breaking point for every one of us. He suffered throughout his life by enduring temptation and not sinning. He suffered more than, and by doing that, by, by having a sinless life beyond the breaking point of any one of us, he becomes our complete saviour. Hebrews chapter five puts it well. If you've got a Bible, you can flick it there. Verse seven, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's not saying that he was disobedient before. He learned the cost of obedience. You know, it's hard. It's hard to keep Sinless, right? You know, to, to say no to temptation, it's hard. Jesus learnt obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, same word, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What this means is that by being made like us in every way and enduring the suffering of temptation beyond any of us, he became the perfect sinless substitute. Michelle said representative. He really could give his life to taste death for all of us because of his sufferings in holding out against sin. He, he, was, he was the substitute for us. So the second description of Jesus is of him as our trailblazing hero. He not only opens up the way to glory for us to follow him in, he also through his suffering secures our salvation. You know, he wins the place for us to go. Now, no other religion has a savior like this. Did you know? In Islam, they think it's blasphemous to think that God could suffer for us. Blasphemous to think that God could become human. What that means is they have no savior. It's all up to the individual. It's so depressing. Hinduism, with its pantheon, its multitude of gods, has none of this but fear and terror. Atheism, you know, it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist, <laughs> to say, I know that God doesn't exist. Oh, really? How do you know that? Um, a lot of faith. But it knows nothing of hope. It's all so depressing, which makes, when you think about it, it foolish to give up on Jesus doesn't it? Okay, so far in Hebrews 2, we've seen that Jesus, the Son of God, is fully human, and because he's our brother, he is the man, the true man who rules the world. He's a picture of our hope that we'll one day share in. He's the trailblazing hero. He's our leader who cements a path to salvation. And finally, being fully man and sinless, this enables him to be, for us, our wonderful high priest. Now, because we're not Jews who lived when the temple was around, Maybe we're not as aware as they were of why we need a high priest. Now, chapters five to nine of Hebrews will unpack this in detail, so we're not gonna cover it all here. But just let's say, when you sinned against the law of God, who is holy, and that law pronounced you as guilty and judged you by the law, then you became dependent upon a mediator. You needed someone 
to step in and make atonement for your sin, someone who was qualified because you weren't, and you needed this lest God's anger remained against you. Now that job of being a mediator, that was the job of the priest. His main job was to turn away anger because otherwise if God's anger is not turned away, then all that remains on you is his anger and our fear of death and our fear of being punished by death and facing that punishment after death. So the high priest was extremely important for you. He functioned as a kind of middleman between you and God. But the only way a high priest could represent you before God in offering a sacrifice on your behalf, here's the point, was because he was a fellow human being just like you. That's the point of verses 14 to 18. For Jesus to be our high priest, he had to be a fellow human. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You see, because surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. If it was angels that he needed to save, then Jesus would have become like an angel to represent them. But it's not angels, it's Abraham, the children of Abraham, people who he helps. And so verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he had to become like us in every way. Now, when it says every way, it means every way. Um, he wasn't just mostly human. He was fully human. He wasn't 50% human and 50% God. He was 100% human and 100% God. All our weaknesses which make us vulnerable to temptations were there. When he was tempted in the desert, he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was desperately hungry. The temptation by Satan to turn the stones into bread would have been real for him. He would have really wanted to do it. And it would have been extremely difficult to say no. And all the things we go through, feeling thirsty, tired, frustrated, angry, lonely, impatient, bored, ambitious, all these things... Jesus experienced and went through himself, and that qualifies him to be our high priest. What does this mean for us? Last point. It means that we have freedom from fear. As a man, Jesus is our high priest who makes atonement for sin. He turns away God's anger from us once and for all. Freedom from fear. Freedom. Secondly, that means through Jesus, God has set us free from the fear of death. Sometimes I get to speak to people before they die. Not a lot, but I do. I think of a guy who supervised the building of the house that I currently live in, the one that Cameron and Maren lived in, the one that Chris and Belinda Edwards lived in. His, his name was Don Dalby. He was a member of Trinity City. He died 12 years ago. Just before he died, we read this passage in Hebrews together, and I asked him whether he was afraid of death in any way. He said, well, I'm not looking forward to saying goodbye to my wife, and I don't like the pain. He said, I don't know what it will be like 
Will it be like your screen sort of shrinks down to a dot? Will that be your experience, like the old television sets? He wondered about that. But he said, am I afraid of what's to come? Bring it on, he said, bring it on. A resurrection body in heaven with Christ, bring it on. Conscious fellowship with Christ, free from all pain, bring it on. The best is yet to come. He was so encouraging to talk to. He was free, you see. He was free from the fear of death. He was free. Jesus, our brother, was Don's high priest. He had made atonement for him and he had removed that fear completely. What do you say to someone who is tempted to give up on Jesus? You know, no other path that you're gonna go on will set you free from the fear of death. You know, you might go on a path like Buddhism or atheism which kind of redefines sin, saying there is no absolute right, no absolute wrong, therefore there's no real sin, therefore there's no real judgment, therefore you don't need to fear. Guess what, that's playing make-believe. We don't buy it, no one buys it, and if you think you do, you're pretending. But deep down, you know you're not. Why? Because you have a conscience. You know there's right. You know there's wrong. You feel guilt when you do what's wrong because you know that the world is a fair place and you should feel guilt, right? And if all that is true, then there's going to be a final reckoning. And if you're thinking it's not, you're just pretending. Only Jesus brings freedom from the fear of death. More than that, because Jesus was like us in every way, suffered when he was tempted, it means God understands. We heard that from the back. He understands what it's like to be human. What do you say to someone who feels like giving up? Well, just remind them, God understands exactly where you're at. He knows the pressure you're under. He knows the pull of temptation. He struggled as you struggle now. What you feel, he has felt. And because of that, verse 18, don't give up. You know, he himself suffered when he was tempted. Therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the final reason to stick with Jesus. You can call out to him. You have a mediator. He understands. He understands. He can help you in the present. Because guess what? Jesus' high priestly work continues. When he offered his life as an atoning sacrifice for sins on the cross, this was high priestly work now in the past. But Jesus remains our high priest. He is alive. And his high priestly work, he's now before God, the Father, in heaven, as a human being, representing us to God. And he is able to help you in your time of need. When you, you're tempted, when you're under pressure, you can call out to him. And he'll help you. He will. He understands. He feels what you feel. He knows what it's like. He suffered what you're suffering. No one else can do that, but he can. He's your mediator. And there's no other. But he's all you need. He's better. So don't give up. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, our mediator. Thank you that he made it to heaven. He's living now, doing what we should be doing, and he's our hope. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that he, he conquered the ridge for us, 
he achieved the salvation and he forged a path for us to follow. And thank you that he's our high priest. He makes atonement and he's able to help us. And he sets us free from the fear of death. What a wonderful mediator. Father, help us to stick with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of what Chris